Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Is it morally wrong to bring children into this world? If you ask anti-natalist philosopher David Benatar, you bet it is. When you have a baby, you're typically not thinking about all the suffering that that baby is going to experience. And that's all suffering that could be avoided without cost to that child. This hour, I'll talk to Benatar. Plus... If I could push a button that would say, render all homo sapiens sperm unviable forever, would I do it? I'd be sorely tempted. Meet Les Knight, a leader of the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. I'm Kyone Wolf. You're on the planet anyway, so join us for a conversation about antinatalism. That's next on Audacious, after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Last year, a 28-year-old guy in Mumbai sued his parents, who were both lawyers, for having brought him into the world. He claims that his parents didn't get his consent to live. So in addition to him being a very bold person, he is also an anti-natalist. That is, he believes that it's morally wrong to bring sentient life into this world, and that humanity should stop reproducing full stop. Now, antinatalism is not a novel concept. You can trace it as far back as some interpretations of the teachings of Buddha and in ancient religious sects. Nowadays, the subreddit dedicated to antinatalism has 70,000 members, and there are 15,000 people following the Facebook group The Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. You'll hear from one of its leaders later. And of course, antinatalism is in our entertainment. In the TV show True Detective, the lead character, played by Matthew McConaughey, is a nihilistic antinatalist. Here he is opposite his partner, played by Woody Harrelson, in episode one of the show. We are things that labor under the illusion of having a self, this accretion of sensory experience and feeling, programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody, when in fact everybody's nobody. I wouldn't go around spouting that with you. People around here don't think that way. I don't think that way. I think the honorable thing for our species to do is deny our programming. Stop reproducing. Walk hand in hand into extinction. One last midnight, brothers and sisters opting out of a raw deal. The show's screenwriter says that that character was inspired by the book Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence, by the philosopher David Benatar. You'll meet him in a minute. When I first heard that clip in that show, I didn't relate to the moroseness of the character's mood, but I did connect deeply with what he was saying. My life, which I also don't remember consenting to mom and dad, has been a really, really good life. But even though it's been a really, really good life, and I'm a generally happy person, I've always had a hard time understanding how people had the, well, audacity to bring new life onto this planet, even with all the good stuff that happens here and all the meaning that we create, it just seems like a lot to put on someone. Hearing that clip made me go, yes, yes. 
Today, you'll hear from two people who've given this idea of antinatalism a lot of thought, even though, spoiler, they know that their philosophy won't spell the end of humanity. Probably. Before we continue, a word of warning, our conversations include at times the topics of suicide and rape. David Benatar is the author of the aforementioned Better Never to Have Been, and his latest book is called The Human Predicament, A Candid Guide to Life's Biggest Questions. He's also a professor and the head of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. I asked him to flesh out, so to speak, the idea of antinatalism. The first part of his philosophy is that coming into existence is always a serious harm. He's saying that even if you're safe and full of blissful gratitude to be alive and you have every resource you could ever need at your fingertips, your existence is still a net harm to yourself and the planet, and procreation is always, always wrong. I asked him to tell me more about this serious harm. Well, I think there are two components here. So the one is about the harm of coming into existence. And then there's a separate but related question about it being wrong to create new beings. So if bringing somebody into existence really inflicted just a minor harm on that person, then you might say, well, it may be that procreation is not wrong, all things considered, because there might be other factors that could outweigh these very minor harms. But in fact, I think that the harms are very profound and that makes uh, it wrong to bring beings into existence because it's just extraordinarily unlikely that this could be outweighed by other factors. And so the point about it being a harm to come into existence is that there's nothing to be gained from it coming into existence. If you come into existence, there are going to be things that can be good or bad for you, and there can be certain benefits once you're here. But coming into existence is not a gain in itself, but it does come with very serious costs. And so on balance, it's going to not be in your interest to come into existence in the first place. I'm thinking about this in terms of people who are listening and thinking, but what do you mean? I, I think a lot of great things have come out of my life. How do you respond to that you know, overall judgment that people have about the positivity and goodness and usefulness of their lives? Uh, lots of things to say in response to that. The one is that I don't deny that good things happen to people. I just deny that that would have been a loss if the, the absence of that would have been a loss if the person had never come into existence in the first place. So if you're here and you've got love and you've got pleasure and you take, gain satisfaction from things, that's all wonderful. And I don't deny the existence of that. All I'm saying is if that had not been there because you had not existed, that would not have been bad. If it had not been there and you, could, and you did exist, that would be a deprivation to you. That would be something bad. But if you never existed in the first place, there would be nothing bad about that absence. And I think the mistake that a lot of people make is to think about those absences without truly thinking about the scenario in which they never existed. People don't spend time regretting and being remorseful about some, let's say, sibling they could have had who never came into existence and wouldn't have had all kinds of pleasures. And I don't think it makes sense to, uh, to worry about those kinds of things. The other point to make is that for all kinds of very good evolutionary reasons, we have, in general, as a species, an optimism bias. We have other psychological features that incline us, I think, towards positivity. And uh, that, I think, leads people to make unreliable judgments about the quality of their life. I want to talk about the concept of a life worth living. Folks listening to this may be struggling overall 
with the baked in feel good position that, yeah, yeah, there are painful things about existence, sure. But overall, I'm really happy and I think it's worth it and it's been worth it to be alive. And I'm betting that the babies I'm going to have are going to feel the same way. When we talk about this worthiness that we apply to our lives, where do you start with that? I'm happy. I think everyone is going to be happy after me. Let's keep going. Well, one thing is to disambiguate that phrase, a life worth living, because it can mean more than one thing. This does bring us back to what we were discussing earlier, the distinction between a life worth starting and a life worth continuing. And I think a lot of mischief has been done by using the phrase a life worth living without disambiguating it and seeing which of those two things you mean. Because I believe that different standards apply to decisions about what lives are worth starting and what lives are worth continuing, that ambiguity is quite crucial. So I think we need to be careful about that. I think what happens is a lot of people are happy to continue living, and because they fail to draw distinction with a life worth starting, they make an inference to the life worth starting case. And that, I think, is just a mistake to do that. And then I would also say that a lot of reasons why people are currently happy have to do with these built-in evolutionary predispositions to, uh, to positive thinking. Hmm. There are other factors as well, though, and that is that if you're young and vigorous and things are going well, relatively well at the moment, you may feel that this is all wonderful, but uh, it's not going to end well. It never ends well. It always <laughs> ends badly. And at the very least, that's going to mean your death, which I think is a very bad thing to happen to people. But worse still, it could be the mechanism by which you die. Large numbers of people, large proportions of humanity die in quite horrific ways. They don't die quietly in their sleep at 99 after leading vigorous <laughs> lives until the end. Uh, and so what, very often it's going to be very bad. And you might not be thinking about that now. And certainly when you have a baby, you're typically not thinking about all the suffering that that baby is going to experience. And that's all suffering that could be avoided without cost to that child. My fiance is a NICU nurse, and she has seen babies who were only kept alive because of our relatively recent medical inventions and interventions. And she saw parents making decisions to keep babies alive who were most likely going to be living a life, if they kept living, full of suffering, real measurable suffering. And on the other hand, some parents saw their baby's grim conditions as a forecast of a life not worth living and gave permission to let the doctors remove care and let the baby die. I imagine to you, the latter is the only morally correct option in this case, but it truly is both sides of, or all parts of our existence. It's everywhere. This, this struggle with facing what is, what is right to continue. Right. So the case you describe is not, not really one case because in uh, neonatal ICUs, you're going to get babies with a variety of conditions. And I don't think that one answer fits all. But I also agree with you that there will be circumstances in, with, in which you've got a given condition, a child in a given condition, and different parents will decide in different ways. I think that's inevitable precisely because these are not precise matters. And also because I think people's outlooks differ. So you'll have more optimistic and more pessimistic people. So the point is that with, a, with an infant, once it's already existing now, it has an interest in continuing to live. And then the question you're having to answer is whether that interest is outweighed by the suffering that it will have. And one of the difficulties in answering that question 
is that you don't know in a given case just how much suffering is going to be. You don't know how much there's going to be. So you're betting. You're betting to some degree. You can make more and less informed decisions. That's all true. But uh, it's not the kind of clear-cut case that you have before a being comes into existence. Because then there's nothing for that being to be lost by not bringing into existence. It, it avoids a lot of moral dilemmas. These moral <laughs> dilemmas that you're speaking about in the, in the uh, neonatal ICUs, those can just be avoided. Let's talk about meaning and how maybe a life isn't particularly pleasant. Maybe a life is downright terrible, but we still crave injecting and weaving meaning into our lives. Talk about how you feel about our compulsion to look for meaning. Well, I think you're correct that we do have that compulsion. If it were all wonderful, we probably wouldn't need uh, the meaning that we're aspiring to. And I don't deny that there can be meaning in lives and that people can create meaning. But it is all what I call terrestrial meaning. So uh, once you're here, you can generate meaning, you can generate purpose to your life. And I think that that's a good thing to do if you're here. But that's different from there being a point to your coming into existence. Now, this can sometimes be trivial points to your coming into existence. So let's imagine your parents want to create you as, a, as their child. So they, they, they decide to conceive a child. And the reason why they do that is because they want to have the experience of rearing a child. Well, there's a trivial sense in which the reason why you're here is for the fulfillment of your parents' parental wishes. But that's not typically the kind of meaning that people are looking for. No. If they're asking the existential question, why am I here? And you say, well, because your parents wanted a child. That doesn't do it for most people. That's not the kind of meaning that they're looking for. I want to talk about abortion. You say that it's wrong not to abort fetuses at the earlier stages of gestation. Tell me more about what you consider to be the earlier stages of gestation and how you draw that line. Perhaps I should preface that with a comment that the antenatalist position doesn't imply the view about abortion that you've just uh, that you've just stated. Uh, you have to couple the antenatalist position with additional assumptions in order to generate that, that conclusion. So if you were to be an antinatalist, for example, and think that you come into existence in the morally relevant way at the time of conception, then abortion would be taking somebody out of existence, not preventing them from coming into existence. And then you might say that abortion would be presumptively wrong because it would inflict this harm on somebody in, in terms of taking them out of existence. But if you couple the antinatalist view with a view about fetal moral status, such that you think one doesn't come into existence at the time of conception, one comes into existence at some later point during gestation, then if you abort in the earlier stages, you're actually preventing somebody from coming into existence. So I want to be clear that the antenatalist position by itself doesn't imply what I call the pro-death view on, abor on abortion. You have to couple it with these other views, which I think are widely held, not universally, of course, but widely held. And when you combine antinatalism with those other views about fetuses, then you reach the pro-death view. What were some of the, um, I know in one of your books, you mentioned some of the considerations when trying to establish that, that likely marker in the age of a fetus, when you can consider that sort of shift having had happened, what were some of those considerations? Okay, well, let me say first, You've got to have a, a criterion of what constitutes coming into existence in the morally relevant sense. In other words, what makes a being morally considerable? 
And I think a very plausible view is sentience, that you need to be sentient in order to have that standard. If you take that view, then we're looking for markers in gestation where, where fetus would be sentient. And so we're going to look at anatomical features like the development of the brain and the, and the central nervous system. But we're also going to look at physiological features because you can have the neural system in place, but it might not be functioning yet. So you need sort of physiological or functional considerations. And another kind of evidence that we can have is behavioral. And there is some behavioral evidence of when fetuses begin to feel pain. Now, this is largely drawn from uh, premature babies. And you can, you can do tests on them to see whether they're feeling pain or not. And there are all kinds of behavioral cues, things like facial movements and uh, things of that kind. What was that age estimate? Uh, the estimate of when a, a fetus becomes sentient is around 27, 28 weeks of gestation. Let's talk about suicide. Your work says that starting a life is worse than ending one after it's been born, that life is not worth starting, but it is worth continuing. Can you talk a bit more about that? I think there is a difference between the question whether a life is worth starting and whether it's worth continuing. And because I think there's nothing to be gained by being brought into existence, it's always going to be a harm to create somebody and bring them into existence. But once they already exist, they're going to have an interest in continuing to exist. Now, that's not to say that that interest can never be outweighed. I think there are some situations, some situations where people are just suffering such poor quality of life that their interest in avoiding that outweighs their interest in continuing to exist. And then I think that suicide or some other form of assisted death is reasonable. But we can't say that just because life is not worth starting that it's always going to be worth ending right here and right now. I don't think that's true, given this interest in continuing to exist once you're here. In fact, many of my detractors try to respond glibly uh, to my arguments by saying, well, why hasn't this guy just killed himself? Which is that they have not paid careful attention to the argument. What kind of emotions are you, David Benatar, because you have a prominent position in the antinatalist philosophy, what kind of emotions are you on the receiving end of after some people read your work or when they read your work and they misunderstand it or worse, when they don't read your work at all and make up their own ideas about what antinatalism is? Very mixed reactions. So uh, quite often I get positive reactions from people like you who've said that they've harbored these sorts of ideas, and then they've read these arguments, and it actually is a source of comfort to them to know that these intuitions that they've had can actually be quite well defended. Uh, sometimes people have believed that they're alone in the world in, in having this view, and then they discover a whole range of other people who hold antinatalist views, and this is a source of comfort to them. So that's one kind of feedback that I get. Uh, then the other kind... Sometimes it's directed to me, but sometimes it's just out there, is of a very nasty kind. People will say things like, well, you know, this is where nihilism leads, or this is where an atheistic view uh, leads. And uh, I mean, for one thing, there are theists who can be antinatalists as well. This is one thing that I point out in, in Better Never to Have Been. Sometimes the idea is this is the madness of, of liberals and where the madness of liberalism leads. And this is all, I think, they're caricatures and 
they're ways of thinking, I think, that bring comfort to, to people. They're able just to dismiss the idea because they can lump it together with a whole category of other views that they, that they dislike. And I think this is all just unfair. I think people need to think carefully and hear the arguments out. I'm, I'm not under any illusion that everybody will do that, but that's the diagnosis. Now, you were mentioning that you don't have to be an atheist to be an antinatalist. This is not a new philosophy, right? The the Cathars, which were a medieval religious sect in southern France in the 12th century, they condemned sex, marriage, and reproduction. They believed that to have children was to trap a soul in a corrupt body. So does it go without saying that, obviously, you think they were onto something? And are there other groups historically who have been loud and proud about not reproducing? They're happy, and of course, they're not very adaptive in terms of their survival. So the Shakers, for example, another group that uh, eschewed uh, procreation. By the way, my position is not opposed to sex. People can have all the sex they like under the appropriate ethical constraints, uh, but uh, it's against procreation. So you're correct that sometimes it has gone together in particular views. So some there's, there's some groups that are, that oppose sex and procreation, but to be an antinatalist, you don't need to be opposed to sex per se. That was Professor David Benatar, head of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, and the author of Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence, and his latest book is called The Human Predicament, A Candid Guide to Life's Biggest Questions. When we come back, I'll continue my conversation with David Benatar, and then you'll hear from one of the leaders of the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. And if you are having suicidal thoughts, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-TALK. Or text the word HOME to 741-741. That's the National Crisis Text Line. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. That's where I was This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and today we're talking about antinatalism, or the philosophical belief that it's morally wrong to have children. And just a quick note, this conversation includes a mention of rape. Professor David Benatar is with me, and he's the author of Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence, and The Human Predicament, A Candid Guide to Life's Biggest Questions. He's also a professor and the head of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Globally, fertility rates have been falling. Now, two big reasons people choose not to have children are that kids are really expensive. And another more existential reason may be this looming feeling because of climate change or, say, a global pandemic, that being a human on planet Earth currently isn't looking as promising as we'd hoped for our kids. So I wanted to know if David was noticing and or predicting any more enthusiasm for antinatalist beliefs, especially due to COVID-19. I can't answer that scientifically, but I can say that anecdotally, it does seem like, as in your experience, people are somewhat or there are more people who are receptive to the idea to the current circumstances. 
And I think that's probably understandable that the harder things get, the more credence would be given to a view like this. If things get even worse, which they will at some point in human history, then I think this will be taken even more seriously. But once you only take it seriously when you're in the thick of the nastiest stuff that can happen, it's probably too late. At least in some sense, it's too late. We need to think prospectively, and humans are not that good about thinking prospectively. I wonder what the state of the world would have to be like for most people to really take antinatalist views to heart. Like, since our wiring overall is to continue, I imagine that the world would have to be so obviously dire and threatening for our species to say, okay, enough is enough, let's call it a day. We don't have a good track record of anticipating that event. But what do you think that event would look like for enough people to say, yeah, let's stop having babies and give the planet back to itself? I don't know that if I phrase the question in quite that way, because you really don't need that many humans continuing to procreate in order for the species to continue. So let's imagine you had 95% of humans saying, we're not going to procreate any longer. And you had a 5% ultra-optimistic, die-hard holdout, then they could replenish the planet, if if the circumstances permitted it, of course. So I'm not sure that there's any scenario, I don't think there's any scenario that would convince 100% of people. I'm reasoning inductively when I say that, because there have been pretty awful circumstances in which people have continued to to reproduce. Just think about the time prior to the development of uh, anesthesia. People were having babies, even though they knew that if their child got toothache, that pain would just go on and on, I suppose, until you pulled the tooth. That if they had to have a leg amputated, that it would have to be done without anesthesia. That if they required any surgery, it would have to be done without anesthesia. And people thought somehow, that this was acceptable to continue to bring beings into existence when, when that would be the case. Now, that is, that is a nightmare. That is, that is hell on earth. And that didn't dissuade the vast majority of people from procreating. And even now, there are people who don't have access to anesthesia. There are people who are bringing babies into existence that are going to die in infancy of terrible deaths. They don't think that's bad enough. And all this leads me to think that there is probably no scenario that would convince 100% of people, which is why I think that the doomsday scenario, as it were, the extinction scenario is one that will happen involuntarily, not voluntarily. Not as a result of antinatalist radio shows. Mm, That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to do a quick shout out to Horace Wells, the inventor of anesthesia. He He was a Hartford guy. There's a statue to him at Bushnell Park right down the street from me. And he had a terrible ending to his life. So suffering abounds. What do you think the future is of antinatalism? Should antinatalism, in your opinion, be a part of political stances and legislation of changing, it's hard for me to even fathom it, but changing tenets of religions? How do you see antinatalism gaining ground? Not easily because of what it's up against evolutionarily. Uh, so it's not going to easily gain ground. But I think there are certain things that can lead more people to be persuaded by it. You've referred to some today. I think arguments will have a role to play in some circumstances. The state of the world will have a role to play in some circumstances. But another point is that antinatalism can come in degrees. So I've referred to a kind of categorical opposition to procreation. But you can have antinatalist policies that are not committed to stopping everybody from procreating. So, for example, 
they may consist in not providing incentives to having children, or they might provide disincentives to having children. And I think at least some of those sorts of policies would be reasonable. I'm not personally in favor of legislating that nobody may have children, because I think that's going to cause more harm than good. Uh, most people are going to rise up in a bloody violence against any such law, and, th- and the law wouldn't succeed. I, I don't think that you, you can just ignore all of that and go ahead and, uh, and establish policies. First of all, in a democracy, laws like that would never pass. And in, in autocracy, to enforce them, you'd have to do all kinds of terrible things, which I would think are entirely unjustified. Of course, that makes me think about China's attempts at population control. Well, I mean, it was successful but with consequences with their one now two-child policy. It prevented 400 million births in China, but at the same time there was you know, forced sterilization and infanticide, abandonment, more boys than girls, decline in working age population. And the, the policy officially ended in 2015, but then they shifted to two children and, and some rural provinces can have three. What do you think about that effort? I think it's flawed for the reasons that I was mentioning earlier. So I'm very reluctant to be abandoning human rights in the process of uh, attaining an, an antinatalist outcome. I, I just think it does so much more damage than good. So th- it's not to say there are no policies that one could introduce that would reduce birth rates. I think there are all kinds of policies that would not violate people's rights and bring about that desirable outcome. I think those are the ones we ought to be pursuing, not the ones that violate people's rights. So uh, among the rights that you can have is a right to do wrong. There's certain kinds of, not not everything, you don't have a right to murder people, but certain things you may may be entitled to do legally, but it doesn't follow that morally it's good for you to do those things. What do most people get wrong about antinatalism? What's the picture they have of someone with your beliefs that's just totally off base? I've read something that you'd said about being viewed as beer-guzzling nihilists? Well, I think that was in reference to True Detective. Ah, yeah. One of the characters was presented as an, an antinatalist, but also as a beer-guzzling nihilist. <laughs> and uh, I was just suggesting you don't have to be a beer-guzzling nihilist in order to uh, be an antinatalist. You don't have to be morose either. You can be a cheery antinatalist. Um, all right. So this is the fun times antinatalist lightning round. Are you ready? I hope so. Organ donation. The most lives a body can save is eight, which is a fun fact. So if I die and my organs are donated and I save eight lives, those eight lives may procreate. How do you react to that? Well, I think it applies not just to organ donation. It would apply to any life saving that you do. So if you save a life, uh, it's possible that that person would go on to procreate. It's also possible that that person would go on to do lots of other nasty things, uh, kill lots of animals and hurt lots of people. But because this is so difficult to speculate about, my view is that you should save a life where you can and not think too much about those further consequences. Now, I know this is not an uncontroversial view to hold, but I just I don't know how you can do this scientifically. And I think that a lot of bad would be done if we stopped saving lives. Can you imagine the doctor that says, well, I'm not going to save lives any longer because I don't know what these people are going to do after I've saved them. Do you think when we die, we go poof? I think about 
when people think, well, have we been somewhere before? Have we been reincarnated? Is there a heaven, et cetera, et cetera, all these beliefs about what we are, what this consciousness is beyond the body, if it is anything at all. And I guess I wonder what you think. I think that when we die, it's finished. I don't think there's anything more beyond that. Obviously, the body continues for a while and decomposes, but the person is gone. And sometimes, sadly, the person goes before the body actually dies. There's some people who uh, dement to the point where they're just no longer a person. They're no longer there. And you can have people in vegetative states, and the body is not dead yet, but the person is gone. If we look at the evidence that we have, you think about if you undergo anesthesia, which we were speaking about earlier, so what happens is a substance is administered, administered to your body, it has an effect on your brain, and your consciousness level is uh, reduced. It's not that somehow the consciousness can persist through the anesthesia. Well, how is the consciousness going to persist through decomposition? Under what circumstances do you think you would ever change your mind? You get some pushback on your ideas, but... Have there been any meaningful rebukes to your beliefs that have given you pause? Furthermore, is there any meaningful evolution that humanity can achieve that would change your mind about whether or not it's right to have children? Look, in principle, an argument that convinced me that this view is mistaken would, uh, would change my mind. Uh, what the chances of that are are quite low, I think, given how much I thought about this. It's not that I've just sucked an opinion out of the air. And now I'm waiting for alternative views to come. And then there's a high chance that there are arguments that I've not thought about that would, that would convince me. That's not to say there'd be no clever arguments advanced in response to my arguments. But my sense is that most of those are clever rather than wise. So they're sort of technical points that people want to make. And I believe in most cases, if not all cases, there are technical answers that can be given to those. But they have really sacrificed wisdom in favor of the, of the clever answer. If you look at the world and you look how replete the world is with suffering, how awful it is, and how pointless all of this is, how it could all be avoided by not bringing new sentient beings into existence, there's a very high bar here that my opponents need to pass in order to, uh, to convince me. It's like, you know, what would cause me to change my mind about the wrongfulness of genocide? Well, there's a hell of a lot of suffering involved in that and a hell of a lot of death. You're going to have to have a really clever, not a really, a really wise argument, not just a clever argument. You can give me a clever argument that is all fine for the seminar room. And I can say, okay, well, that's very clever. And that's an argument I've got to engage. But am I going to go out and start committing genocide because you came up with a clever argument for why this isn't wrong? No, that's not what a wise person would do. So this is one way I sometimes ask people to think about this. I say, let's imagine that a daughter that you bring into existence uh, will be raped one day. That's on one side of the scale. Now tell me about the things that would need to be positive on the other side of the scale that would outweigh that. So tell me about all the good things that would, that would make that life a net good. So what would need to outweigh the rape? I think when people start listing things for you, the indecency of this equation becomes apparent. So, well, she must have a happy career, a successful career, and she must have a, a loving relationship, and she must live a long life. 
And you say, okay, so all that, all that outweighs the rape. Doesn't that sound indecent to you? Sounds indecent to me. So I don't think that people think clearly about these matters, and they don't think deeply about these matters. They they glib about the kinds of suffering that people experience and will experience. You can avoid all of that suffering. You can guarantee, in fact, it's the only way that you can guarantee that your child will not suffer and die. See, a lot of parents, all good parents, want to be protective of their children. And I think a lot of them have an overly optimistic view about how much they can protect their children against the world. And the point is the world is a big place and it's an ugly place. And there's very little parents can do even in their lifetime to ward off all of that nastiness. And in the ordinary course of events, parents won't even live the full uh, lifespan of the child they bring into existence. And so there's going to be a lot of time afterwards where they can't protect the child from all this nastiness. And so I think people are just a little too glib about this. That was David Benatar, head of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Cape Town in South Africa and author of two books on antinatalism, Better Never to Have Been and The Human Predicament. After the break, you're going to meet one of the leaders of the voluntary human extinction movement. If I could push a button that would say render all homo sapiens sperm unviable forever, would I do it? I'd be sorely tempted. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Where nature needs no assist, say we opted out. Be life going its own way, never creating it to suffer, knowing it goes away. This world ain't worthy of my kids, it's not of usage. If I could prevent their birth, then I'ma do it. Cause if I had a choice, I would never bring a life into this world. As if I had a choice, I'd prefer it had not been done to me. If I had a lot of these professional mommies. Well, they think there's nothing better than having a baby. Oh, they think it's the biggest thing in the world, having a baby. I call it pumping out a unit. That's, that's all they're doing. That's all they're doing, pumping out a unit. Boom. Polluting the earth with these creatures who have no future. Have you pictured what this planet is going to be like in 40 to 50 years? It's going to be a big smoking ball of <laughs> A big smoking, flaming, stinking ball of gaseous <laughs> That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. This is Audacious. That was comedian George Carlin, and I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about antinatalism, or the philosophical belief that it's morally wrong to have children. It's also a social movement. Earlier, you heard Professor David Benatar talk about the kind of logistics that may have to be involved in the world truly ridding itself of humans, which brings us to one of the leaders of the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. Well, I'm Les Knight. I'm uh, one of the volunteers in the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. And uh, the name says it all. We just want humans to voluntarily cease procreation until we go extinct and give the rest of the planet a chance to recover and thrive. I asked him to expand on this movement. One of the most important aspects of the voluntary human extinction movement is the freedom, the right, the wherewithal to not procreate. Reproductive freedom doesn't exist anywhere fully. It ranges all the way from inconvenient, like in our country, to violent and even deadly in many countries where uh, a woman is forced to procreate or die or be uh, shunned from the, the group. 
Romania is a good example of a modern culture where they outlawed all forms of contraception and, uh, of course, abortion. So bodily autonomy for everybody, especially those who are capable of having children. And you encourage uh, for those who have full bodily autonomy to the degree to which you can in your culture to consider heavily not having children. Ah, if it fit on a bumper sticker, that's what I would do. <laughs> Great. Yeah, it needs work. It sounds good, though. You got Wouldn't make the best acronym, it. no? <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> One of the questions on your website is, I'm extra smart. Shouldn't I pass on my genes? Yeah, that seems like everybody thinks that their genes are, are extra smart and should be passed on. But of course, that can't be true, right? We're all above, we're all uh, average uh, below normal. No, wait, wait, no, we can't all be. No. Half of us are below normal. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> See there, I, I proved I'm in the, last, in the lower half. <laughs> so uh, how, about, how about this? What about the human instinct to breed? It seems like it is an instinct, and I can't tell uh, somebody you don't feel that way, but our cultural conditioning is so strong to natalism that people feel as if the urge to procreate is biological, but it isn't uh, any more than it is for any other species. We all have urges which uh, encourage us to engage in activities which quite often, unfortunately, lead to pregnancy and birth, but the instinct is to have those activities not to actually give birth. We, we have to learn that that's how babies are made. Even if it were uh, biological, we have uh, learned to overcome uh, quite a few of our biological urges, fortunately. Well, if we haven't, we end up in an institution, you know, but most of us have, and uh, we can, even if the urge to procreate is biological, we can overcome it when conditions indicate that we should. And I think they do right now. So what about the question of the human, the homo sapien place in nature on this thing that we call planet Earth? What about our place here? Yes, what is it? Are we exotic invaders? <laughs> Most places we are. We, we evolved in Africa and everywhere we went out of there, uh, we were exotic invaders and we did what exotic invaders do. It caused a lot of other species to go extinct. But even in Africa, we have evolved into an exotic invader. We could also be uh, what's called a super predator. Throughout uh, evolution, there have been creatures that evolved to be such good predators that they ate all of their prey. And of course, then they became extinct. And right now, just about everything is our prey. And uh, we'll keep going until we eat it all. What about the idea of heading off this planet and onto another one? Yes, wouldn't that be something? Uh, it's really fanciful. It's science fiction fun to think about. If we were to uh, send a spaceship holding 2,000 people into space every 15 minutes constantly, our population on Earth would remain stable, what it is now. I think condoms are a cheaper way to go. Yeah, because as uh, Professor Benatar told me, you don't need too many people to continue having babies to keep the human population alive on this planet. If that's a desirable thing to do, you're right. It was only about 70,000 years ago. We were down to 10 or 15,000, we figure, based on uh, genetics. And now look at it. We're just so freaking fecund. We, we breed like crazy. 
Well, how about the question of, you know, what's what's the point of this planet if there aren't these human beings here to enjoy it? Maybe it's the same point it was about 200,000 years ago before this furless beach ape came along. <laughs> as a whole, I'm not sure we enjoy it as much as is necessary in order to keep it uh, from being destroyed. Imagine yourself in a really pleasant, wonderful place. It's probably a place with not very many people, like maybe none, <laughs> except for them. <laughs> so what we really appreciate is uh, uh, nature. Uh, E.O. Wilson calls it biophilia. We have a love for life, uh, especially all of the natural world. It's good for people to get out in it now and then. If there were a magic button for extinction, would you press it? If I could push a button that would say render all homo sapiens sperm unviable forever, would I do it? I'd be sorely tempted. Just imagine the good that would come out of it. We could uh, start taking care of everybody who's already here. We could uh, clean up our messes as we phase ourselves out. We could stop fighting over uh, scarce resources because we'd all have enough. It could be a wonderful world. One of the things that I read in Professor Benatar's books were these two angles of what could happen if voluntary extinction happened. So one would be short and fast and painful, and the other would be a more gradual phasing out of humanity, and it would also be painful. <laughs> what do you picture when you picture this actually working? Is it the short and fast and painful or the long and slow and painful or something else? <laughs> I'm not sure it would be. Uh, there is some pain in life always, and that's why antinatalism uh, has validity. But the vehement plan is for a phase-out, a peaceful phase-out. We have a lot of work to do to clean up our messes. And I think as time went on, of course, we'd be dying off as time went on, so there are fewer and fewer of us to enjoy what's left. But I think it could be rather pleasant. We wouldn't need as much as we all uh, migrated to the uh, warmer parts, although at the rate we're going, the warmer <laughs> parts are migrating to us, so like, that may not be a problem. Earth's sun will burn out in a few billion years anyway, so what difference does it make if we hang out here and continue on the paths we're on or not? I think it does matter what happens between now and then, even if we're only going to live a little while. And it's the same with planet Earth. What has taken billions of years to evolve? I think there's some sort of ethical reason, moral reason even, that we should allow it to continue on doing whatever it does. I mean, it, uh, evolution doesn't have a, a consciousness, of course. It just does what it does. And uh, if we weren't cutting it short, uh, it would continue on and eventually burn out. As you said, there'll probably be an, uh, an extinction or two, mass extinction like a meteor. Who knows? What do you think the odds are that this movement will succeed? I think the odds are very slim, uh, about the same as uh, taking care of 9 or 10 billion people, which is forecast by the end of the century. The odds are very slim, which is a very good reason not to procreate. Do you think now that the world seems more chaotic, at least to many more people than before, do you think that more people may consider antinatalism something that's really the right thing to do? 
Oh, absolutely. I, I see it all the time. The uh, the child-free movement has really blossomed in the last couple of years, and I can't even keep up with all the child-free uh, articles. Right now, The Guardian is doing a whole series on people who are remaining child-free. So it's a consciousness that is really evolving rapidly. Oh, yes, I think it could uh, shift very quickly. And I, I'm kind of concerned that if it does, women's rights won't be respected because every time a society or a nation wants more offspring or fewer offspring, women always uh, bear the brunt uh, and lose rights. And so I think we should start now protecting women's rights, increasing the status of women, so that when people do wake up and realize, yeah, you know, the intentional creation of more of us really can't be justified right now, not anywhere. Women's rights need to be protected as well. I want you to imagine that you are the last homo sapien alive and you're making a speech to no one, but it's the final speech from the final homo sapien. What would you say to your empty audience? Thanks for the fish. <laughs> and no one would get the joke. There wouldn't be anybody there to get it. I'd get it. <laughs> That was Les Knight of the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. And so long and thanks for all the fish is a reference to the book The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It was the message left by the dolphins when they departed planet Earth just before it and all of its remaining human inhabitants were demolished to make way for a hyperspace bypass. Next week, we flip it. Hear from people who go to great lengths to have babies. These people that are going through the process of IVF and trying to find a donor that can just give them an egg so they can just try and have a baby, they want this. And so I thought, if nothing else, I'm giving my genes and my progeny a chance with somebody who really wants them to succeed and have a great life. Hear about surrogacy, IVF, and egg donation next week. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. You can find more information and subscribe to our show at ctpublic.org audacious. You can send me your thoughts and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kyone Wolf. And if antinatalism is something you think about, I really want to hear your thoughts. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. And for all the fish. Salam, 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 salam.